Take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter together, and then we will go through the text uh, verse by verse. So Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 21, which is the entire chapter. Let's begin by reading together. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. And let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, we finally start the book of Daniel together this morning, and I think it's appropriate to remind you that we are tracing the promise of God. God had made a promise that he would give to the world a redeemer. 
In Genesis 3, immediately following Adam's sin, God promises that one day there will be born to the woman a man who would defeat Satan, even as he himself is wounded by the devil. So this Redeemer will be wounded, but he will defeat Satan personally. We know this to be a picture of Jesus at the cross, wounded for our transgressions, but victorious in redeeming sinners. So God, throughout the Old Testament, is unfolding the promise of Genesis 3. Who is this Messiah that God will send? When will God send him? What will he do? By the middle of Genesis, we know that the Messiah promised in Genesis 3 would come from Abraham, and then, more specifically, from Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who is renamed Israel. At the end of Genesis, Jacob says to his son Judah, You are the tribe that will one day rule, and that Shiloh, the Messiah, to whom the right to rule belongs, will come from your family, from the tribe of Judah. So now we know that the Savior, this Messiah, the Redeemer from Genesis 3, will come from Abraham's family, from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, and he would one day rule the world. Now, a lot happens from the book of Genesis to the book of Daniel. But one of the things we learned during that time is that the Messiah will come from the lineage of King David, who himself is from the tribe of Judah. God promises David in 2 Samuel 7 that the Messiah would come from his descendants, that the Messiah would be called a son of God, that God himself would be a father to him, that he would reign forever. So, by the life of David, by the time and life of David, we have made great progress in identifying the, the details about the Redeemer promised in Genesis 3. But when David's son Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel splits into two. The northern kingdom calls themselves Israel, which can be confusing, but the southern kingdom is called simply Judah. The northern kingdom immediately rejects God. They, they create two golden cows, and the king of the north says, Israel, these cows are your gods who led us safely out of Egypt. So God judges the northern kingdom first by sending the Assyrians to conquer them, and the northern kingdom of Israel is gone. Eventually, the southern kingdom of Judah also rejects God. A king from the line of David named Manasseh dishonors God so thoroughly, he is sacrificing children to false gods, he defiles the temple, he persecutes the people of God for most of his life. God responds by telling Manasseh through the prophets that he will destroy the kingdom of Judah, which seems unthinkable. And yet God is saying that he will. Now, Manasseh eventually repents, and his grandson, Josiah, a king himself, turns things around in Jerusalem. He follows God faithfully. There is a great spiritual revival in the southern kingdom of Judah under Josiah. However, God tells Josiah that he will not relent from the destruction that he's promised. He'll, he'll simply delay it until after Josiah's life. At the end of Josiah's life, he goes out to fight against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, this is pretty important in the grand scheme of things because Josiah, this good king who honors God, is trying to keep the Egyptians from linking up, from helping the Assyrians who are at war with Babylon. The Assyrians have always been the bad guys. They're the ones, after all, who wiped out the northern kingdom. So Josiah is trying to keep the Egyptians from helping them. But instead, the Egyptians defeat Josiah. He dies in the battle in Jerusalem. The southern kingdom of Judah become servants a vassal state, a, a puppet state for the Assyrian Empire, the, the very people they were trying to keep Egypt from helping. In a short time after this, the Babylonians are finally strong enough themselves to defeat the Assyrians, 
And because the southern kingdom of Judah is a puppet state for Assyria, the king of Babylon decides to conquer Judah before defeating Assyria at Nineveh. So the Babylonians whom Josiah tried to help by fighting Pharaoh Necho become the conquerors of the kingdom of Judah in their campaign against Assyria. Babylon then will be the new empire of the world uh, and Babylon is the empire that destroys the southern kingdom of Judah. Now if you're having trouble with all the names and places basically just remember this. Israel splits into two separate kingdoms. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians. Years later, the southern kingdom falls to the Babylonians. Now, is this a surprise to God that the southern kingdom has fallen to the Babylonians? Absolutely not. God had promised that this would happen because of their idolatry and, and their evil under Manasseh. In previous passages, we heard from the Old Testament prophets who were sent to the kings of the north and the south with warnings from God, but the kings would not listen to those prophets who came from, from God with warnings. And so God judges his own people. In fact, God sends prophets to the southern kingdom even after Babylon conquers them. And he tells the southern kingdom through these prophets, do not resist the Babylonians because I'm judging you with the Babylonians. I sent the Babylonians because of your idolatry. But the southern kingdom won't listen and they rebel twice against Babylon's peaceful rule. So the first time Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem, he accepts their surrender and leaves. But twice Israel rebels. And the final time when Nebuchadnezzar has to come put down their second rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar completely destroys Jerusalem. He's sick of the rebelling. He's not going to do this a third time. He destroys the walls of the city. He destroys all the buildings. He destroys the temple, just completely wipes it out. There is nothing left and no one living in Jerusalem. When Nebuchadnezzar is done with it, it's desolate. It's gone. Nebuchadnezzar kills the sons of the king that he finds. He blinds the king and carries him away to Babylon so that the last thing that the king of Judah sees before his eyes are plucked out is the murder of his sons. All because, again, the king would not listen to God, to the prophets of God. The king would not submit to Babylonian rule as God had declared their punishment to be. In the middle of all this trouble, Ezekiel is prophesying, and he says in Ezekiel 21, Thus says the Lord God, Remove the turban, take off the crown, nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes, whose right it is and I will give it to him. God says, take off the crown of the king, Ezekiel 21, 26. Remove the turban, take off the crown, until he comes whose right it is. And then God will give that man the crown. Well, there will come a king to whom this crown belongs, the Messiah of Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 49, 2 Samuel 7, at this point in the Old Testament, we are now waiting for Jesus to whom this crown belongs, the Shiloh of Genesis 49, the Messiah, the one to whom the crown belongs in Ezekiel 21. The people of God, though, are in captivity. Jerusalem is a desolate place, and now the question moves towards when will this Messiah come? We know he'll be from the line of David. When will he come? This is what the book of Daniel 
is in large part about. Now, chapter 1 is not too intense. We'll move through it in seven points. First of all, notice uh, Daniel uh, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to notice point 1, notice Babylon. Uh, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You should look into ancient Babylon. It's really interesting. It's a good subject to study. This is the land of modern-day Iraq. Much of ancient Babylon has been excavated archaeologically. Uh, during Saddam Hussein's reign in Iraq, uh, he restored much of the city of ancient Babylon. He rebuilt even some of the palace structure and the ancient museum, some of the wall structure around it. Babylon uh, is a well-known and fantastical ancient city. It was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens. And Nebuchadnezzar was the most prominent king of Babylon. You can learn all about him uh, from archaeology, from historical study, uh, and he's a prominent figure in the book of Daniel in the Bible. Verse 1 speaks of Israel's first rebellion against Babylonian rule. Nebuchadnezzar did not tolerate this rebellion. He goes to Jerusalem, he besieges the city, he defeats the city, he removes Jehoiakim from being king, re replaces him with his uncle, Zedekiah. So, point number one, notice Babylon here, the power, the magnificence, the historical uh, relevance of what's happening when we read that Nebuchadnezzar or king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Point two, notice our God seemingly defeated. Our God seemingly defeated. This is a major theme in the book of Daniel as well. How can you have a God without a people? If God's people have been wiped out, which they aren't by chapter one, but they will be desolate, uh, Jerusalem will be desolate uh, by the time we get into chapters two and three. How can you have a God without a people? If his people have been wiped out, if the temple is destroyed so that God is not worshipped, how can he be a God? What honor is really due a God who, who won't protect his people? What is a God without people? What is a God without temples? What is a God without laws? Kings to honor him, priests to serve him. Verse 2 says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. God is beaten. That's the perspective of the world. Our God, the God of Israel, is beaten. His people are subjugated. The holy things from God's temple are taken away and placed into the temple of a Babylonian god as trophies. You notice in verse 2, Babylon is referred to as the land of Shinar. Shinar is an Old Testament reference to the, the place where the Tower of Babel was built after the flood in Genesis, a temple to the idols of the people. Shinar is a spiritual reference to the very heart of idolatry that took place after the flood, where after God had saved Noah and his family, in just a few generations, the people had set up their own idolic structure here, this Tower of Babel that God comes and separates them from. We are meant to see, with this reference to Shinar, a satanic struggle here. If you do not like dark spiritual realities, this book of Daniel will be very uncomfortable for you. This is not merely a human struggle between two nations. This is a spiritual struggle between an angel, Satan, who is in rebellion against the God who created. 
The idols and false gods of the pagan peoples are not merely figments of their imagination. They didn't just dream them up at night, but they are earthly representations of real spiritual darkness, real evil spiritual beings, beings in rebellion against their creator, beings who themselves want to be worshipped and glorified rather than God. In chapter 1, God, our God, appears to all the world as if he's been completely defeated. Point number three, notice the Chaldean program. In verses 3 through 5, we're told that some of the prisoners from the royal family, this would be the family of David or, or David's close kin, some of the prisoners from the nobles of Judah had been taken captive. This was probably an effort by Nebuchadnezzar to discourage future rebellions. You know, that was a very common thing in ancient days. It didn't work in this case, by the way, because Judah is going to rebel again and get Jerusalem uh, completely destroyed, as I've said. But, but this idea of hostages so that a, a nation that had pledged servitude to you would be loyal, you know, you would take their, their young men, you know, their young sons, the future heirs of their house, and you, and you would take them as political hostages so they wouldn't rebel because, you know, they know you control the safety of their lineage, of their offspring. So these would have been young, teenage young men. You know, they wouldn't have been adults. Uh, they, they would have been the hope of the future nobility class. And so some of these hostages we find at the end of verse 4 are going to be trained as Chaldeans. We don't know if these hostages were actually made eunuchs. It does say that they are placed in the charge of the chief of the eunuchs, uh, which is actually pretty cool archaeologically because this guy Asphanaz and the idea of a chief of eunuchs is, a, is an archaeological discovery that we've made where we actually uh, identify you know, references to a chief of eunuch uh, uh, being an official role, an official uh, uh, um, administrative uh, role under Nebuchadnezzar in the ancient world. So that's pretty cool. But but sometimes the word eunuchs means castration, and sometimes it just meant one of the king's close servants. For instance, if you remember the Old Testament story of Joseph, Potiphar was called a eunuch, even though you'll remember in that story, his wife plays very prevalently in the story of Joseph. Uh, so he, he was not, Potiphar himself was not castrated. He had a wife. So eunuch can sometimes mean castration, can sometimes just mean a close servant. We don't know if Daniel and his friends were actually made into eunuchs, but this program is going to make them close servants of the king Nebuchadnezzar. As far as the training they're going to receive, the men selected for this would be getting a really special privilege. I mean, these are hostages in a foreign land. They could have come up upon any fate that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar had chosen for them. He, he might as well have just imprisoned them all or put them in the fields to work or, or set them in the mines to chisel away at rocks and stones. But instead, he wants to assimilate these young men into the mystical religion of the Chaldeans. Now, these Chaldeans were the educated advisors to the king. They were the ones who understood the will of the gods. They were some of the most ancient Babylonian people anyway. They, they were meant to understand signs and dreams, secret meanings of things. So Nebuchadnezzar says, get some of the young Judean captives, uh, guys who look good, People without physical blemishes, you know, it would have it would have impugned upon the king's honor if there were people with birth defects or or or, or disabilities that were in close service to him. You know, there, there's a lot of importance around the the imagery of those who are going to serve Nebuchadnezzar. So he says, get get some who are good looking, no physical defects, and then it says who seem intelligent, and teach them the language and the writings of the Chaldeans. Verse five tells us that these young men would be entirely provided for. From the king's own table, they would literally eat like kings. 
And, and if you think about it, this is a pretty good deal for hostages. It is hard to imagine a softer landing place for someone who's being taken captive into a foreign land than the, than the privilege of being selected for, for this. I mean, you're, you're not going to have to work or scrape for a living. You're not rotting in a jail cell. You're not doing manual labor. Your food, everything is going to be provided for you. All you get to do is learn and live in this uh, rather easy life, this luxurious kind of life. So this is a good deal for Daniel. I mean, yes, it's, it's, I'm sure the whole situation in totality, being taken as a political hostage in a foreign land was very difficult, but for how it could have gone, uh, this is a pretty good deal. Uh, point four, notice the assimilation beginning with new names. New names. In verses six and seven, we are introduced to four of these young men. Again, no more than teenagers. Their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those names meant God is judge, Daniel. Jehovah is gracious, Hananiah. Who is he that is God, Mishael? And the Lord helps Azariah. So these Jewish names imply that they were all four raised to worship and honor the God of Israel, but, but they are renamed with pagan names after the pagan gods of Babylon, Bel, Aku, Nebo. It is the clear intention of their new world to disconnect these young men from their old God. So they get new names, names that don't honor the God of their families, the God of their people, the God of their fathers but names that honor the gods of Babylon. Point number five, notice the determination then of Daniel and his friends to live faithfully. Immediately after being told of their new pagan names, we find in verse eight these words, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. It is clear then from the text that God already had such a hold on Daniel's affections that even the riches of Babylon, compared to the miserable suffering, sufferings of Israel, could not entice him to love God less. Babylon and its gods could not supplant the love of God in Daniel's heart. God had captured his entire affection. His heart irrevocably belonged to the Lord. And I would ask you for a moment, does your heart irrevocably belong to the Lord. Try to imagine the situation for these young men. Home is gone. There is no reason for them to think that they will ever see Jerusalem again. In just a few years, Jerusalem itself will, for all intents and purposes, cease to exist. Home is gone. Family, friends, parents, gone. There is no reason to think that they'll ever see their family again. The Jewish people themselves will soon not be a people anymore. Their nation will not be a nation anymore. Their city and their temple will lie in ruin. I don't know if you can remember what it was like to be young. Maybe you're listening to this and you're a young man or a young woman. But you almost can't help yourself from imagining what your life might look like when you get past 18, 19, 20 years old. Who will you marry? Will you have children? Where will you live? What will you do for a living? These, these men were part of the nobility, the royal family in Jerusalem. Surely they had, they had hopes and dreams. All those are gone. 
everything that they have ever known, everything that they have loved, any any hope of, of marrying a particular person, of settling down a particular way, everything that they believed in has been or is in the process of being utterly wiped from the face of the earth. This Babylon is their future. There is no logical reason to rock the boat here. By all earthly appearance, their God is defeated. Some would say dead. Why not just embrace this new life? Why not embrace this opportunity that you're getting? That We get the impression that's what all the other Jewish hostages do. I mean, you're telling me that I get to eat at the king's table and be educated and have a house and have possession and be a part of the ruling advisors to Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, all right. But God has so captured the affections of Daniel and his friends. They love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. This, my friends, is the Old Testament version of the shield of faith able to quench the fiery darts of the devil. You can know the Bible really, really, really well. You can commit yourself to being a moral person. You can go to church, but if you do not love God, if He has not captured your affections, you will fall to sin and death. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Daniel is a sinner. He's not a perfect man. Daniel's a sinner. I mean, you can imagine the kinds of things he struggled with, or at least you can compare Daniel to the kind of things that you struggled with. It's a 13, 14, 15-year-old person. He's not a perfect person. He's not a righteous person. He's in an age in life where he's only just becoming aware of his own sinfulness of the depth of his own depravity. That's what makes youth ministry so unbelievably hard is because you're trying to shepherd along people who themselves are discovering their own wickedness month by month and year by year. But Daniel, he loves God. His faith in God is what saves him, not his own righteousness or perfection. He will not compromise even if it means working in the mines or the prison, or worse, instead of living in the luxury of the king's house. Well, point number six, notice God takes action. In the verses that follow, we are informed that Daniel has a problem with eating the food from the king's table. In fact, he and his friends are determined that they will not eat the food or drink the wine from the king's table. Now, most scholars agree that the problem here is with the king's ancient custom, uh, and it was an ancient custom among all peoples, it continued on into the Roman times uh, centuries later, that, that the, the food that supplied the king's table those animals would have been offered as sacrifices to the pagan gods of that king. The wine that the king received would have been poured out as an offering to the, to the gods which he served. Thus, there was imagery here. There was symbolism. There was devotion. This was with purpose. Every meal that the king ate was a symbol of the king's service to and reliance on his own god. The king's glory was tied up in the glory of his God, and so what he ate, what was supplied to him, would have been offered to the idols. You know, uh, it wouldn't have been that way for every citizen, but the king is not every citizen. Again, this custom would continue into the Roman Empire. Daniel did not serve the king's God. Daniel would not rely on the king's God. Daniel and his friends would not eat the food supplied by the priests of the king's God. 
This appears to be Daniel's conviction, but it is God's salvation. This should have been the end of Daniel's Chaldean studies. I mean, look, <laughs> he's rebelling here against the clear instruction of the king. This should have been the end of the whole program for Daniel. But verse 9 says, Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. God did this. This is about God, not Daniel. God is going to use Daniel to say much more concerning this promised Messiah, not just to Israel, but God is going to use Daniel to speak to the entire world. And so God is positioning Daniel to speak to the entire world. This is not about Daniel and his bravery, Daniel and his righteousness. Daniel was a sinner, just like you and I, but he was a sinner who loved God. God had captured his heart, and God now has a purpose with Daniel. Well, if God's in it, then it's going to turn out okay. And, and you know the story as it's described from here. Daniel and his friends are given an opportunity to eat vegetables. That's the word here in the English. Although the Hebrew word for vegetables here is likely broader than just vegetables as we know them. Allowing for bread, grains, uh, perhaps even different kinds of meat, just not from the king's table. For 10 days, they do not eat what they should have been eating. This was a, a test, a, a testing period. And after the 10 days, God caused them to look better than the other captives who had been eating from the table of the king. This is not a diet plan, which, which some people make out of the book of Daniel. This is not the Bible's way of telling you that being a vegetarian is, is, is you know, the, the healthy choice and you're being a good steward of your body if you just eat vegetables. That is Missing the point, God caused them to gain favor in the eyes of their masters. God caused them to be healthier than the others. So in verse 16, we are told they're allowed to permanently keep their diet, which is good because it means they can continue in their Chaldean studies, which is good because God is going to use Daniel in this office in the future. Verse 17, we're told that God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God is positioning them for something special here, for something important. By the way, when it says uh, they they had under, Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, we're not given the impression that that was a, a normal thing. In fact, the book of Daniel in the very next chapter is going to make it clear how rare it was that anybody should understand anything in a vision or a dream. So, so we're not supposed to go out trying, well, let's understand all of our dreams. You know, we really need someone who can, who can cast a good vision or who can interpret, you know, our thoughts or ideas. No, that's not the point. God is going to do something amazing with Daniel. This is about God. And so God is doing supernatural work here. This work of God greatly excels the careers of these young men, so that at the end of their three years of training, they are tested and found more suitable than all of the others, all of the others in the training program, to assist the king uh, Nebuchadnezzar in his rule. So, God takes the crown away from David's descendants. That's verse 1. And then immediately God begins to raise up a prophet in Daniel to tell us when that crown will be placed on the coming Messiah. That's the true king. That's uh, Daniel chapter 1 in a nutshell. Now, just a closing thought here. I, I thought about how we might we might come to a conclusion. And, and there is a, a section in the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, you know the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, where uh, Jesus speaks of something that I think is particularly applicable as we think about Daniel chapter 1. And, and actually, it's how Jesus closes the sermon of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the most famous sermon by title that, that surely exists in all the world. He closes his sermon 
with this challenge. Well, if Jesus can close his sermon that way, I figure it's okay for me to close this sermon uh, with the same words. He says in Matthew 7, verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And I read that, and, and, and I'm reminded that it's not a matter of, of if the rain will descend and the floods will come and the winds will blow and beat on the house. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When. You know, I, I look at my life as an example right now, and, and I'll say that I'm very happy. I'm very blessed with, with, with different aspects of my life right now, in particular, and and if I'm foolish, I might be tempted to think that uh, things will always be this good. I mean, I have a wife who loves me. We're both healthy right now. I have five children who are also healthy and seem to be growing, seem to be strengthening. Their lives are not, uh, are not uh, um, falling apart around them. We're all around each other. We're all happy. And, and if I'm not careful, I could be mistaken into thinking that the storm isn't coming. But, but some of you I know that I'm speaking to, you've already been through. You've already been through the storms, many of them. You've already suffered in ways that, that, that I personally have not yet. You're on the other side of them, or perhaps even this morning you're in the midst of them. And, th and then I'm sensitive to the fact that there are people uh, much younger than me here this morning. Teenagers who who perhaps can't even imagine what one of those storms uh, uh, would be like. And, and so it's not a matter of if the storms of life will come, but, but, but when will they come? I know I've said this before, but... But but my dad always had a saying growing up. He would always look at me when whenever things were going were going bad, and he would say, "Well, son, listen, nobody's getting out of this alive." <laughs> and he's right because the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. When I look at my wife, when I look at my children, I know this: either I will bury them, or they will bury me. Either way, the storm is coming. What is, what is your life built on? And Jesus says the person who builds his or her life on the words of Christ, who follows Jesus, is like the person who built their house, who built their life on the rock. And when the storms come, they may be shaken. They may even succumb from time to time to a little fear or worry or doubt. But the, the, the life that they have built does not simply fall apart. The faith that they have doesn't get blown off into the sea. But then the person who, who doesn't build their life on, on the teaching of Jesus Christ, who doesn't become a disciple of Jesus, 
when, when the, the storm comes for that person, it says, and it's ominous. It's the final words of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, and the winds blew and beat on that house that was built on the sand, and it fell, and great was its fall. You hear the emphasis there? Great was its fall. Now, I mentioned this to you today because if you look at Daniel's life, I mean, this is a, it's, it's an impossible thing to imagine. I mean, I have teenage children. I, I can't imagine one of them being taken away from me and whisked off to a foreign land to be raised apart from me with, with really no realistic hope of seeing them again. At least that, that's my understanding of the situation. Just taken, just gone. I can even less imagine being one of those teenagers. I mean, Daniel, Daniel's facing real storms here. But you see, he doesn't fall apart because God has captured the affections of his heart. His faith is squarely upon a God, and it doesn't even matter that that God appears to the rest of the world to be powerless and frankly defeated at this point in time. Daniel knows whom he has believed in. His life is built on the rock. And, and, and my question for you this morning as we close is, what foundation? is your life built on? Does your heart belong to God? Yeah, everybody's building their life. Tomorrow you're going to go out into the world and you're going to build your life. Some of you are going to go and you're going to spend eight hours at work. That's building your life. What you do with the money that comes from that building your life, whether it goes to bills or whether it goes to a bank or whether it goes to a payment or whether it's it's, it's stored up for the future. You're, you're, you're building something. And you build every day with all of your affections. You, you, know, you, you build with the things that you love and the masters that you serve. But all of our possessions are dust to dust and ashes to ashes. You can take none of it with you. What are you doing with your life? What, what, what foundation are you building upon? Is what you're building going to stand? Or even in the first Corinthian question, is what you're building with gold, silver, and precious stone? Or are you building a life of wood, hay, and stubble? Paul introduces the possibility that there might even be Christian people who will survive as though through the flames. But watch their life work, even as Christians be decimated by the judgment of God when it's revealed that, yes, their foundation was on the rock, but their house, their work, was unbefitting of a child of the kingdom. It says in that passage in 1 Corinthians that, that, that they will escape through the flames, though they will suffer much loss. It's hard to think of suffering loss on the way to heaven. What are you building your life on? Are you building your life on the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Has Jesus captured your affections in the same way that God had captured Daniel's? I hope so. I hope so. He is worthy of it. He has uh, died on the cross to pay for your sin. He has given his life to free you from the mastery of sin. He has risen from the grave to be the first fruits for resurrection so that you don't need to be afraid of death. You don't need to be afraid of the storms that come to you in this world. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. If I close my eyes, 
to this world, whenever that day comes, and I take my final breath, I will open them to life with God. There'll be no period of a thousand years where I'm rotting in a grave. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus has done that for me. And day by day he walks with me as my great mediator. As I fail, as I sin, he speaks on my behalf. He says, this one is covered by my work on the cross. This is mine. To his disciples, he says, no one can pluck you from my hand. And Jesus has done this. Let, let me tell you, Jesus is worthy of your affections. Will you serve Jesus? Will you love Jesus? Do you not find in Jesus a master worthy of your affection? Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find rest for your souls. He is a good and gentle master. He is a good shepherd. He is a friend that sits closer than a brother. Jesus is worth your affection. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your, your word and, and for the introduction to something new in the book of Daniel here. And I pray, Father, that you'll bless our time and study together. Help us to honor you as we read your word. Help us to pay attention, to think through these things, to gain great confidence in your plan of redemption that we know culminates in the return of your son Jesus in this earth. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.